like still I, I got I like accidentally he started to come into character yeah, yeah yeah I noticed <laughs> and, I, and I, I was actually thinking like does he does he think I have the mic on I didn't on, know or? what was going on I was just I was just it's it's hard to know when we're in character and when we aren't isn't it <laughs> welcome to Mike <laughs> welcome to Mike Linus I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage welcome back well I'll just tell you a couple things that have been on my mind this week uh first of all this isn't political this isn't cultural this is just this is just something I've been thinking about and maybe you can empathize I had a thought this week about my fifth grade teacher who I really hated at the time. Okay. <laughs> she was, I thought she was a very mean person. And I went into this rabbit hole. I, I remembered a fantasy that I had when I was in grade five. That was Uh-oh. 1999, <laughs> 2000, where I would meet her on the street when I'm an adult and I would tell her off. You'd say, you're bad. <laughs> yeah, I would say that. And if she tried to say, you can't say that, I'd say, I'm a taxpayer now. <laughs> I can say whatever I want. And I, it occurred to me, you know, I'm in my 30s now, and if I ran into her, I, I probably could, but I wouldn't do that. I would I would be happy to see her, actually. Because, what, what kind of bad teacher was she? Like, why? And Okay, this is the thing. I can't even remember. <laughs> like, she was strict. I know that. Right. Um, I, I remember my parents told me that, like, at the parent-teacher interview, she gave off the vibe of, wanting to mold students you know mm. wanting to wanting to discipline them wanting to like take the raw clay of children and turn them into adults basically <laughs> and and anyway I, I i just thought no if i ran into her on the street my goodness over 20 years since i last saw her i mean kingdoms have risen and fallen all that's <laughs> solid etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> i'd be so happy to see her because it's like oh my and then i then i went to my junior school's website to check the staff literally not a single teacher that i had you know grades one to five is still there went to my middle school several are still there my seventh grade teacher whose life we made so difficult who i who i like very much he's still there okay so again can i can i interject to ask i mean why did you make his life difficult because I uh he was young and vulnerable <laughs> and uh the, the class realized that because <laughs> what more do you want yeah i i don't think i need you to finish that sentence i mean because the reason i ask is like you know when it comes to dislike teachers, particularly in elementary school, it's like there's two possibilities, right? Like one is like I think back to certain teachers I have where like what they were doing was insane. It's insane to think about in retrospect, like certain teachers I had where it's like, I don't know how this was even allowed. Like how were they allowed to be this cruel to children like how and how did they get so angry at like the dumb shit that like i don't know kids do when they're in like the second or third grade oh yeah but then there's like the other thing which i mean the classic example right and i'm thinking of several instances of this happening is like the supply teacher who comes in and then like one kid decides i can be careful about how much i say here you know one <laughs> kid decides he's gonna act a certain way for the day and have that be his like character and everyone's laughing because they know what's going on and the supply teacher is saying uh hey don't laugh it's not funny and then that just makes everybody <laughs> oh, laugh yeah. some more or i'm thinking of another case where this kid went into the back you know in, in my french class i don't remember exactly somewhere between like grades three and five i remember what part of the school it was in and i remember the classroom very vividly but i don't remember what grade i was in but my French class uh, had these like big cabinets at the back for some reason. They were like, I don't know, like several feet tall with these big sliding doors. So this kid, like as we're all flying into the class, just thought it'd be really funny to just get, to just 
just get in one of them and close the door. And he stayed there for the entire class. And we all saw it. And we're all just like sniggering. And like, <laughs> it's so funny. And then at the end of the class, he just like slid the door open and came out. I don't even remember what the teacher's reaction was or if like she even <laughs> saw it. But we were all just thinking like, yeah, like score one for the little guy against the man. And like, there's that type of behavior when you're a kid as well, where it's just like, yeah, being a piece of shit for no reason. Well, you have so little power that like <laughs> the classic supply teacher syndrome and this seventh grade teacher of mine, who was a really sweet guy, uh-huh. a really good guy, very nice to me also, which did not mean I was nice to him. <laughs> I mean, a good God. I mean, I have the nerve to have been so angry at Mrs. Plevin in grade five. And, and meanwhile, this poor guy, I was such a tyrant to he was just a guy who i think lost control of the class pretty early on i heard from later students that he became stricter the next year and good for him (laughs) finally after i graduated high school i went back to middle school you know in that summer between grade 12 and university i went back to middle school because i wanted to see him because i felt very fond of him and I go in and, you know, teachers, they see so many students over the years, you never know if they'll actually remember you. They probably won't. I saw him. He sort of focused his eyes, looked at me and went, oh, it's the guy who was so hard on me in my first year of teaching. And I thought, oh, God, I guess I kind of was, wasn't I? Sloan, drop and give me 50. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sweet guy. Glad he's still at it. And Mrs. Plevin, if I saw her again, I'd be so happy because it's like, oh, my God, you know, so what from 1999 is still around, but you still are. And she's Probably, probably Mrs. not. Mrs. Plevin, if you're listening, come Let's on. Let's do us. <laughs> yeah, nationwide manhunt. Let's find <laughs> Mrs. Plevin, whose first name I can't even remember. I mean, fuck, they were able to find that Alexandra Pelosi movie for us, so I'm sure they could find Mrs. Plevin. Any folks, any veterans of Princess Margaret <laughs> Junior School from the late 90s, check it out. Well, I got a quick story to talk about uh, just before we get to our movie. Uh, This is actually a rare example of a piece of good political news that I want to share, and it involves the Democratic Party. Would you believe it? Wow. Now, I want to clarify, it does not involve the National Democratic Party. Uh, This is the Michigan Democrats, so the state Democratic Party, who uh, last November won the first Democratic trifecta in Michigan in four decades. Now, Michigan is, you know, one of several states that was swept by Republicans in the 2010 midterms. Uh, Wisconsin is another obvious example where these were kind of bastions of American liberalism and of the Democratic Party, but also of the American labor movement. Wisconsin, you know, I remember speaking to uh, Dan Kaufman, Wisconsin native, some years ago around his book, uh, The Fall of Wisconsin, which kind of, you know, documents not only Scott Walker's conquest of Wisconsin from the right, but also, you know, if you go back like 100 years, you know, Wisconsin had been a laboratory for progressive policymaking, social safety net, welfare state policies, progressive social policies, democratic reform, all kinds of stuff. And after Scott Walker won in 2010, it's like we're going balls to the wall. We're going right to work. We're gerrymandering the legislature like crazy. They gerrymandered it so much that Democrats could get over 50% of the vote for the Wisconsin House and get like 35% of the seats. That's how badly they fucked it up. Same with Michigan, okay? Rick Snyder comes in in 2010. He's part of the Scott Walker generation of these fucking, you know, Koch Foundation hatched creatures of the conservative movement. And in 2012, Rick Snyder introduces a right-to-work law. Describing the scene, I want to quote here from State Senator Darren Camilleri. He says of the right-to-work bill in 2012, there was no hearing. There were no public availabilities. They passed the entire thing in one day. The governor signed it behind closed doors because they knew what they were doing was incredibly unpopular. The people of Michigan did not want to see a change in our workplace protections and our union intentions. And he's right about that. You know, Michigan has been a stronghold of American labor, you know, principally because of the auto industry, but because 
because of other things as well. And it's part of the state's identity, much as organized labor was part and parcel and, and, you know, still is of the state identity of Wisconsin. But a guy like Rick Schneider, this style of Republican politician, they don't give a shit about that, right? Once they have power, they use it. They wield it. They go balls to the wall for a reactionary agenda. They do not care how unpopular it is. They will use whatever tools at their disposal to get it through. And, you know, Democrats, I think you can really see this at the national level, like compare uh, Scott Walker or Rick Snyder to Barack Obama and his administration. Obama wins this sweeping mandate in 2008 by like June 2009, I think it is, with the Senate special election uh, that I think elected Al Franken. Democratic trifecta, filibuster proof majority in the U.S. Senate. Do they do a public option? No, they won't go. They won't go to the mats for that. Do they reform the American financial system? Do they reinstate Glass-Steagall? Do they reinstate, you know, New Deal era legislation? to protect the economy and protect ordinary Americans from anything like the financial crisis happening again, which, you know, actually would have been popular, which they had a mandate to do. Uh, Do they pass card check, which they'd explicitly promised to do, uh, which would have made it easier for workers to join unions? No. Uh, Apparently, 60 votes in the Senate and the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression is not a moment to do any of those things. And it's certainly not a moment to empower American workers. Anyway, that's the basic dynamic, right, that we've seen for decades in American national politics. You know, Republicans, when they have power, national or state level, they just use it and they don't care about like what people think. Democrats, you know, much more managerial, much more, you know, we got to find bipartisan solutions, etc. Now, the Democrats in Michigan won a trifecta in November. And guess what? They are actually using it. Last week, the Democratic-controlled House passed the repeal of right-to-work legislation. Today, the Michigan Senate did the same. It's on its way to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's desk, and she has said she is going to sign it. In a single day earlier this month, as like you know, Republican lawmakers are protesting and whining, the Michigan legislature passed a new gun control law. This is all in one day. Passed a new gun control law, repealed an unenforceable but still on the books abortion ban passed by the state Republican Party, and enshrined new civil rights for LGBT. TQ citizens. I wrote a piece for Jack in about this week, and I was struck going through the debates around these bills, the speeches being made uh, in favor of them. First of all, uh, how different the character of the Michigan State Democratic Party is. There's a lot of uh, Democrats that seem to come from a much older kind of tradition, a much more Midwestern American labor tradition, and they don't talk like we're used to hearing national Democrats talk. But just more broadly, a lot of them are speaking with genuine ideological clarity and confidence. Uh, There's a guy called Joey Andrews, whose his background is with the AFL-CIO as a policy analyst. He's a a young guy. I don't think he's much older than us. And he had a whole thread talking about right to work. And, you know, he rightly just calls it part of a larger political strategy envisioned by employers advocated by their allied network of lobbyists and think tanks, the goal of which is to smash workers' rights, smash democracy, and make your wages lower. And, you know, I guess this is setting the bar pretty low, but I'm just not used to hearing Democrats talk this way, and it's uh, it's oddly refreshing. There's nothing in the world like action part. Baby, let me take you The story of Action Park is a true crime story. As you entered the park, you saw this thing. And you're like, this is real. The engineering behind this, if there was any engineering, was just nuts. Build it higher, make it faster. People control the action. Combine that with liquor and anything goes. There were no rules. For a lot of kids, that was heaven. And if you couldn't swim well, yikes. 
Well, it's been a while since we've talked about, what would you call this, a documentary you would stumble upon on a streaming service. Yeah, we haven't, ta- it's been a while, I think, since we've talked about anything uh, that's sort of at the intersection of, uh, yeah, of documentary and kitsch. And this certainly fits that uh, category. So this is a film called Class Action Park from 2020. And I was immediately interested in your suggestion because I saw it was narrated by John Hodgman, who, uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar, he's he's kind of a smart smart comedian <laughs> he's, he's kind of he's kind of clever you yeah, know folks what if we made america read again oh man uh so yeah he narrates it and i knew it could only be so good if he narrated it but he and he's a lib right i think he was a big warren guy you know <laughs> one of those uh but yeah in vernon township new jersey for almost 20 years with its golden period being the 1980s, there was a, a theme park called Action Park that is notorious as, well, its nicknames include Traction Park, Accident Park, Class Action Park, and Friction Park. It was the inspiration for a Johnny Knoxville comedy of recent years called Action Point. And this documentary shows that it was this lawless theme park run by a rich sort of libertarian megalomaniac where many, many people were injured and even died. And this <laughs> rich megalomaniac used every loophole, used every connection, basically ran a little fiefdom in, you know, several in, in rural New Jersey, yeah, in, in 20 acres of New Jersey, where he just it was lawless. Yeah, the, the background on this is so funny, because it's like, the film sets it up. And you think it's like, the, the, this is supposed to be a critical setup where it's like, Oh, yeah, we're introduced to this guy. And he's like one of these guys who's literally too sleazy for Wall Street in the 70s. He was kind of in the penny stock business, which like the film kind of like lazily uses, you know, that scene from The Wolf of Wall Street kind of invokes that it does that oh, with man. a number it, of it, film it, clips throughout of those, the movie. It's one of those documentaries <laughs> where you you will get the clip of the most obvious thing to illustrate <laughs> the most obvious thing. When he said penny stocks, I thought we're going to see Leo. There, there's a later one that's really funny where it's like, uh, what's the quote about how theme parks reflect oh, oh the- yeah 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 so the narrator at one point says the narrator john hodgman at one point says theme parks often reflect the vision and Thru- throughout the ages and, and personality of, of their creators disneyland for example reflected walt Disney. and the minute he said theme parks reflect their creators i thought okay we're gonna see walt disney but then i also thought I wonder it's like what's wonder, the second bullet point? Well, yeah, it's like who who created Six Flags and how does that <laughs> represent his personality? Who created Universal Studios? Who created, I don't know, any other Euro Disney? How did that reflect Michael Eisner? Uh, well, nope. You have two examples. Disneyland and Action Park, or sorry, what, what the fuck's it called? It's called Action Park. A- Action Park. And I thought, well, the way to rephrase that is, just as Disneyland reflected Walt Disney's uh, Promethean Randian vision, uh, <laughs> so did Action Park reflect Eugene, what's his name? But that doesn't sound as sweeping and declarative as, throughout the ages, theme parks have often reflected their... <laughs> <laughs> theme parks are a land of contrast. But right, so this guy, Eugene Mulvihill, he's like too sleazy for fucking Wall Street in the 70s. He has some company called Mayflower. But I don't even it's like fair to call it a company. It gets axed by the uh, SEC because they're like selling dodgy securities to people exactly like in The Wolf of Wall Street. Hell, maybe this is useful where Leo is fucking telling people about like cutting edge tech company they need to get in like now and then it's literally like a guy with some like engine in a garage that's probably going to blow up or something and, and he's like, you know, duping people into investing in it. It's like that kind of shit. 
So what did he do? Well, there was some like eccentric venture venture capitalist floating around, uh, and he got Robert him- E. Brennan was his name, and New Jersey in this <laughs> rural area became this hotbed for the worst that society has to offer. So Hugh Hefner started a Playboy club there. Apparently, they would wheel in, you know, Tony Bennett to, you know, and, you know, other other celebrity friends to just, you know, work their way through. Right, right. So as as like Atlantic City is a failed Las Vegas, this place is a failed Atlantic City. Like yeah. that's the rung of like American casino capitalism we're talking about that created this. And you know, Hugh Hefner, wherever he goes, establishes the air of you know, well, life is cheap here, and people are sacks of meat, and we do not respect the humanity of any living thing. And, yeah, we, and, we respect radical individualism, which yeah. when you think about it is more liberatory. And so in that atmosphere, that's when that's when Action Park was created. <laughs> yeah. And like, as with uh, a lot of failed projects of this kind, I mean, it, it wasn't designed to be a failed project. Like this guy, Mulvihill, who knew Donald Trump hilariously, Donald Trump was courted to invest in this. And it was like too stupid an idea for even Donald Trump. Like even Donald Trump had enough scruples to be like, no, I'm going with the Taj Mahal. This is this is. This is not going to make me money. This is going to lose me money. It's going to hurt my reputation. But the pitch here, which, you know, like the investors were sold on, it was like, this is going to compete with Orlando, but, you know, it's going to be for freaking Jersey. Yeah, right. It was a lot cheaper than Disneyland and it was a lot less regulated. So (laughs) as we learn, it attracted a largely, you know, working class local clientele who, you know, this was probably the best option. And, you know, we we hear talking head interviews with a lot of the people who, uh, worked at the park or attended the park and you know they'll often say some version of oh it was dangerous but uh but uh you know we kept coming back and i i guess i guess from that we're supposed to take that well you know i can't argue with the free market but i mean <laughs> you know it was the only and cheapest theme park around all right let's so let's talk about how dangerous this park actually is and i will right. say you know the film is very entertaining i mean this is yeah. a more entertaining film than a lot of documentaries you're going to stumble across on a streaming service it's got these great animations of the rides which show how dangerous they actually were and like you have to see this to believe it like the first one it talks about is something called the cannonball loop yeah this is kind of the the centerpiece of the park and it is quite literally a slide that i mean it starts at basically a 70 degree angle that you go down and (laughs) it looks like something that like wily coyote would set up to entrap the roadrunner DUI Acme Insta Slide. Right. And then, you know, theoretically, you work up enough speed that you do an entire loop around. There's literally an entire loop around and you go upside down and then you emerge out the other end. Now, we learned some hair raising details about they were paying $100 to park employees, you know, child park employees. They put some dummies down it and the dummies all came out like decapitated and stuff. And then they were like, well, let's put let's try it with humans and see what happens. You can't get a good sense with a dummy so yeah for a hundred dollars like cannon fodder all these teenage employees were put down and like we hear hair hair raising things about oh my god you know there were teeth found they were like like, people coming out with lacerations they're like what's going on it's like a smooth surface it's a water slide it enclosed like tubular water slide what's that about and yeah it turned out people were getting their teeth knocked out and then the teeth were getting stuck in the plastic and it was cutting people so yeah a a lot of the film is structured around (laughs) just learning about the various rides there's uh the the car Colorado River Ride, the uh, the battle action tanks. Well, Motor World is a funny one because <laughs> it, it's kind of like the go kart ride, basically. And 
It was next to the bar. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, if you've seen the great Itchy and Scratchy Land episode of The Simpsons, one of my favorite classic episodes, right? They have like Homer Marge go to Parents Island and like they put the motor area right next to Parents Island, which is where all the booze is. So literally the ride, I mean, it's like these motorsport go-kart rides, but it is literally like the drinking and driving experience. And I mean, just to give you an example of like how much personal whimsy was being inserted into the park. I mean, I don't know if this idea ever happened, but there's a former employee who recounts a story about Mulvihill pitching this idea with a completely straight face. Like the guy thought it was a joke for something they could do at the go-kart ride. And the guy was like, oh, we should have a thing where if somebody gets a certain time, like if they're able to do a lap in 50 seconds, like we should have women in bikinis standing by to come out and like hoist a ribbon around them and like give them a bottle of champagne. Brilliant. Now these are the job creators, you know? (laughs) Right, right. these are the visionaries that we need to give tax incentives to. Right. Well, what's amazing about this is the park opened in 1978. And then like a couple years later, Reagan comes along and he's like, yeah, the problem is that there's too much regulation. We got to turn the bull loose. And yeah, like this guy, Mulvihill, the whimsical, eccentric genius at the heart of this theme park, his whole philosophy really is this kind of like Randian, no government philosophy, like get get off my back. He you seems know. very... I mean, according to the people who worked with him, he seemed very earnestly surprised that the government could order him to do anything on his property. Right. And he actually bludgeoned the state of New Jersey into, you know, like, obviously, over time, like, they stepped in, you know, they were constantly like, you know, it's like, one employee is talking about, oh, yeah, the marshals would show up and like, literally, like, guns drawn, or that's the implication, like, come to, you know, general manager's office, and they'd be like, we need to see the books. But instead of being the beginning of the end for the park... Mulvihill Hill basically just like used political clout and money to make it too costly for the state of New Jersey to really pursue this. Part of the park was built on uh, state land and he figured out how to get the state of New Jersey to sell him the land so that, you know, he was no longer leasing it and he was no longer bound by the terms. He also created a fake insurance company called London and World Assurance. Right, you know? because because <laughs> you you need insurance to run a park like this. And so he created, yeah, he created his own insurance company out of the Cayman Islands. Right, because, right, literally a Cayman Islands based insurance company with just like fudged books and like, you know, made up documentation. Like we see some of it and it looks like handwritten. And then at a certain point, if you are, you know, the big theme park in New Jersey, you know, you're priced in such a way and you're in such an area that like, you know, you're, you're the main summer entertainment option. And you're like central to the local economy. You're too big to fail yeah. at this point. <laughs> and you may be wondering, well, what was good about him? And actually nothing. It seems there was literally nothing good about him. I don't know if it's going to pick up on Mike, but we are at the uh, Dalton McGinty reasonableness studios instead of the Gore Lieberman studios. And we're actually just leasing this so we don't own it. And so uh, another tenant is doing some construction in the background. So sorry if that picks up on Mike. But I mean, we should talk about the tone of the film, which is absolutely extraordinary because you have these former employees and guests who are, you know, all uh, exuding this kind of like, I mean, it's this film is really like a monument to Gen X nostalgia. And actually, if you go to the Wikipedia page for uh, Action Park, there's a legacy tab and it says Action Park was a cultural touchstone for many Gen Xers who grew up in North and Central Jersey, as well as nearby locales in New York and Connecticut. A popular list of, you know, you're from New Jersey when that circulates an email begins with, you've been seriously injured at Action Park. So a lot of these people are like... 
they're gushing about it. They love this shit. Well, for the first hour, it's mostly funny stories. Yeah, it's it's mostly these people saying, God, you know, would you believe it? Like, I got hurt so bad at this ride. Could you believe that, you know, they, they had the nerve to create this kayak ride on, like, rapids where <laughs> somebody was electrocuted? Uh, and oh, yeah, that. but that, by the way, that anecdote is really funny because they gave the kayak ride, like, the most innocuous name ever. Oh. It was called the Kayak Experience. Yeah, it's the Kayak Experience. And then, you know, you see the way it's branded. And it's like, oh, it's like a, just a serene little thing where you paddle with a kayak. And then, yeah, the narration very calmly tells you. And it's like, oh, yeah, and some guy got, like, was electrocuted here. But then the tone does a complete 180 when we learn about the first teenager who died at this park, a man named George Larson. We meet his brother. We meet his mother. His mother still visibly angry, upset, on the verge of tears as she, you know, 40 years later as she recounts this story and also recounts the extraordinary measures that were taken by Mulva Hill and allies and government and media to to Crazy. basically cover this up. So yeah, they contrived a whole like they they fed to the press this entirely made up story just to spin it ever so slightly so it didn't sound as serious. They used the fact that this guy had previously worked in a different summer or something in a completely different season for another ski resort that was for like the sister ski yeah ski like a resort. sister resort or something. Uh, he'd worked there as an employee. And they use that to be like, oh, the incident happened at night. He was using his employee privilege to get on the ride. And then it seems that their lawyers argued that, well, it wasn't the ride that killed him. It was the fact that he... Uh, he hit a rock 25 feet away from the ride. Yeah, see, the ride only made him go through the air at a high once, velocity. Once you're at the rock, that's somebody <laughs> else's jurisdiction. I mean, Actually. crazy. And I mean, so the, t- the tone of the film completely shifts here. And it's like... It's difficult to watch. I mean, it's so evil, the cover-up. And and her, the mother's pain, is still so so visible and so tangible. That is a shift in tone that the movie never fully recovers from. Yeah, and I mean, you know, meanwhile, like, you do get these statistics about, like, you have one former employee who says that just on an average day during the week, you'd have 50 to 100 people being injured. And, like, that's presumably, like, an official statistic. You think about all the unreported injuries people must have had. And then he says you double that on the weekend. I mean, 50 to 100 people a day. And like some of the rides, like there's other ones we haven't talked about. There's the Tarzan swing. People would swing into the water, you know, from this big rope swing. And then like frequently they'd get injured. But then the culture of the place was like, I mean, it's fucking it's like social Darwinism. People get injured. And the culture of it was such that like the lifeguards and, you know, everybody watching such as lifeguards even existed would literally like jeer at the people, especially if they were like crying. Yeah, you're a pussy. You're a pussy. Yeah, like they recounts like that's not a word that like Will's just interjecting here. Like one of the employees like recounts like them like chanting that at people as like you could see blood in the water. There's a wave pool where they had to stop it every few minutes to make sure there were no bodies that had gotten sucked underneath. And they talk about having to stop the pool because like the water was like you it wasn't transparent because there was a mix of like suntan lotion, urine and blood that was obscuring blood from the open water. wounds I mean, of those 50 to 100 people. And again, the film like throughout, you know, most of it is like basically celebrating this as these, you know, Gen X people come up on screen to be like, hell, you know, I mean, it was it was, it was an 80s movie realized it was just like, you know, E.T. or Stand By Me where, hey, we were away 
from home and our, you know, neither our parents nor the nanny state could, you know, tell us what to do. That becomes more and more difficult to maintain, you know, in the last act of the movie where um, <laughs> the, the park's luck begins to run out. After almost 20 years, you know, the park <laughs> accumulated a body count. More and more people died. There was more and more bad press, more and more calls for regulation. And then eventually, finally, uh, the free market uh adapted to the situation and <laughs> put Eugene Mulvihill out of business. Well, I'm not even sure if it was the free market because it sounds like just the regulatory climate in New Jersey changed and you had, like, I don't know about the electoral history of state of New Jersey, but my guess is like some Democratic governor or whatever was just like, it's insane that we don't have like safety regulation. Why are we letting people set up shell companies to like do fake insurance schemes? Like, you know, some Democrat who's probably ideologically very capitalist, but was like, you know, not of the Randian school, but of a school that's like, well, you got to have rules for any of this to work. Eugene Mulvihill dies in 2012. We see excerpts from the obituaries in the New Jersey press it's where like, like Chris Christie, Cr- Chris Christie like, yeah. is praising him for all the work he did for the economic development of New Jersey. <laughs> and this cuts back and forth between that and this poor mother whose son died saying my husband came home and said get the best bottle of red wine we can because Eugene Mulvihill is dead and (laughs) we would never drink to anyone's death except for this man this man was scum he didn't care about human life it's good that he's dead and I'm listening to her and I'm thinking Spot the lie. <laughs> I mean, sounds like a pretty wretched person. Man, and then it's crazy. In the final, like... Two minutes. Know, two minutes of film. The film literally tries to do this, like, well, uh, we're we're all fallen creatures, aren't we? And what about what about the duality of man? Oh, it's like, oh God, there's know. this there's this one person who, you know, was doing a deposition on him in it's, the it's 80s. A, it's the local reporter. It's like the local reporter from the local Vernon paper. You know, if you know anything about like local news, usually you got like one or two beat reporters. One sitting across from me here, right? Former beat reporter Will Sloan of the Woolwich Observer. You know, these are the people, the only people that hold like local power to account. Like, and I'm being serious here. The only people who go to the council subcommittee on, you know, water or something and are like, wait a minute, why is like a certain developer here? And then they find out that, well, the developers like paid off everyone on the committee to privatize the water or something. This local reporter who we find out, Jean Mulvihill got fired because she was doing her job. And there's a recorded phone call that she has where he's like, oh, you know, you're anti-business and you know, the ideology comes through like he's a bully, but he's also like a bully with, you know, a Randian ideological conviction. He is willing to use his muscle as kind of like a local baron to get this reporter fired. And then she appears at the end of the film and she's like, I came to know him in his later years. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that he was a good person. And this is where I want to interject and say like, okay, you don't need to finish the sentence. That's all that matters. And then she basically like tries to like save his soul. You know, we had some conversations we had some heart to hearts and uh you know he was a complex individual and you know what fuck we're all complex individuals i the the worst serial killer you know ed ed gein was probably like perfectly nice to uh, you know whoever sold him his newspaper in the morning yeah and, psych- psychopaths fucking love like little animals and stuff okay yeah like- famously and what matters is this man devoted his life to this park where like many people died and were injured and he had the state of new jersey under his thumb to keep this afloat 
to create this climate where human beings were nothing but just sacks of meat. And then the, the last like 45 oh seconds God. of the film are, it's the most jarring clash of sensibilities well, and tone. Well, y- you see the mother <laughs> and her husband visiting the grave of their son. No, no, okay, we got we got we to gotta start with, we got we to gotta explain first what teased that up because it's absolutely incredible. There's a bunch of these Gen Xers and they're doing these little monologues where they're like, in the 1990s, you know, something changed. They're doing this chin strokey, like, oh, it's no longer the age of Ronald Reagan and, and John Hughes movies. No, no, no. Oh, the defenses they give for him are unbelievable. If you can call them defenses, they say, you know, all of us have dreamed of having a world where we didn't have to follow the rules. And by golly, this guy did it. Right. And then as they're, this monologue is happening, you know, as they're saying things like, uh, you know, it was dangerous, but, you know, we just thought if you don't like it, get out of Jersey. And, you know, we knew it was dangerous going in. And hey, we also had fun. Yeah, unbelievable. So as they're saying that, it cuts, and it's literally an American flag billowing in the breeze and then it pans out you see it's a cemetery and it's like it really seems like visually what it's suggesting is like isn't this is what the troops died to protect okay this is was, america yeah. yeah right was this like de-stream capitalist right to make a bunch of shell companies and avoid regulation and make a theme park where he got extremely rich bought off local officials got reporters fired and got people killed and, okay? if, and if you don't like that go to switzerland <laughs> that, or that's some, right you know go navigate social bureaucracies in Sweden or France, whatever. That's the implication here. But then what the cemetery is, is you you realize it's George Larson's parents and they're visiting his grave. So the film ends as the camera pans out and you see they're like weeping at their son's grave as all these American flags billow around it. And I mean, I think this is very cynical. Also, it just like doesn't work at all. I don't know how many people died at Action Park, but it wasn't just one person. Electrocuted. Decapitated. Fractured vertebrae. Impaled on the bowl. Had a heart attack. Nobody should ever be the second person to die in a wave pool. Close the wave pool. The action I suspect if the filmmakers, you know, heard this, they would agree with us on some level, because I feel like the end of this movie is, I mean, it's it's meaning to be sort of poetically ambiguous or something. Right. And what it actually does is just channel the ideology of the disease society that creates it. And, you know, that's what hacks do. Like, (laughs) like, this is unrelated, but I was watching this documentary that's you can find it on Tubi, actually. It's about the last 10 years in the life of the great actor Klaus Kinski. It's called, I think, Creation is Violent. And it interviews all of these people who worked with Klaus Kinski on these movies, you know, the movies he made after Fitzcarraldo, basically. And all of them, you know, to a man say, oh, he was awful. You know, he was doing horrible things on the set. He had lost his mind. The women, without exception, say that he sexually harassed them. Sometimes while the camera was rolling, he would sexually assault them or grope them or do things like that. And then this documentary, which, I mean, it's full of incredible stories, especially if you're interested in him. But it ends on this note, you know, there's this one guy who I think worked with him very briefly, who says words to the effect of, you know, he was crazy, but you know, sometimes you need a little bit of craziness in art. Well, and it's like, no. Yeah, actually. Actually. And I feel like if whoever made that film heard us, he would agree with us. But he just knows that you can't end it on a down note. You've got to end it on an upbeat note. You've got to end it on an upbeat note that allows for some ambiguity because that's the proper way to structure a documentary, (laughs) right? And that's how this one ends. Because to end this one on a down note is to basically say, God damn America. To, to end this movie on a down note and actually do justice to this story is to say this whole fucking society is diseased and needs to be like burned down and rebuilt. 
adults. Yeah, this this whole ethos that you've seen like play out in reality throughout the film is terrible and it needs to be destroyed. I mean, I will say like this is the second time I've seen this movie. I think it's a very entertaining documentary. Oh sure, like, yeah. And like these stories are unbelievable. I, I mean, it's it's an amazing subject, and I do think in many ways the film treats it very well. Having said that, I mean, the the apparent thesis of this film elicits two responses in me. I mean, one is just like a very boring one, which is that, look, I think regulation is good, okay? I think that the ethos of sort of cultural libertinism, the kind of uh, libertarian ideas that are, you know, at the center of this theme park and which are really coursing through the film... I just think it doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all. I think that if you're an ordinary person, in the same way as like when you get on an airplane, right? You as a consumer, as a citizen, whatever, you get to have a reasonable expectation that the plane is not going to crash, that your life is not going to be put at risk, and that there will be, you know, whole systems of like safety checks and things like that, which are not left up to private actors alone to determine. Well, that's the whole appeal of a theme park. The appeal of a theme park like this is you get to experience the sensation of danger without actual danger. Otherwise, I could just jump off a building. Right, exactly. A lot of these rides were unsafe, you know, just because they were very badly designed. Again, because everything's being done like on the cheap. Because the point of this, contrary to what the film is kind of uh, suggesting throughout, is like, this is an enterprise. The point is to make as much money as possible for like this one guy and his investors. And you do that by cutting costs. Cut labor costs, cut legal costs, cut construction costs, whatever. So that's one thing. I'm sorry, but regulation is good. And, you know, that's no less true of a theme park than it is of like getting on an airplane. The second thing, you know, again, speaking to the libertarian philosophy that inspired Action Park, this guy Mulvihill is discussed as a Randian figure. And I think that's correct. But in Ayn Rand's novels, the message is always that, uh, you know, you have these heroic uh, Promethean geniuses who we rein in at our peril. And, you know, collectivism is always trying to oppress these people. And if and if we could just turn the bull loose, as Ronald Reagan famously promised to do when he rang the bell on the uh, on the New York Stock Exchange... If we just turn the bull loose, these people are going to create a new form of architecture or something. They're going to give us these epoch-defining innovations that, hey, you know, they're going to get rich, but they're going to make life better for everybody. And this film shows us what the Randian philosophy really is, okay? It's not a guy inventing beautiful buildings or, you know, epoch-defining innovations. It's a guy who's like, okay, well, what if we did a go-kart ride where where people got incredibly drunk and then traveled at very high speeds and then, like, women in bikinis came out and, like, gave them a bottle of champagne? What if, this is another thing that, that appears in the film, what if I dismantle a uh, brewery from Germany and bring it over and we have our very own version of Oktoberfest? For what reason? I don't know. That was just a dumb idea this guy had. And when you build a society that entrusts guys like this with all the power and celebrates their stupid, idiotic schemes as great heroic enterprises, this is what you get. You don't get the Sistine Chapel, you get the Cannonball Loop and London and World Assurance. Catch the action with over 50 rides, shows, and attractions at the world's largest participation park where you and the rides become one. You're just minutes away. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. Just go to Action Park. There's no other park like it. When it's hot out, this is a great place to spend the day with your family. So lots of big things for little kids to do. I love Action Park because it's so beautiful. It's like coming to Broadway. It's wonderful. 
race like a pro. It's great. These are the most amazing rides in the world. I love it here. There's nothing in the world like Action Park.